And Nadal is off to an early lead. You know, the checklists and routines that each player goes through are so unique, aren't they? Oh, they really are. And, and Nadal's routines are particularly interesting. As we saw a few minutes ago, Rafa is meticulous about the correct placement of his water bottles, making sure the logos are facing the court. Yes, he's even said he has a hard time concentrating on the game if those bottles aren't properly lined up. And then, of course, he takes extra precaution walking across the court, being sure not to step on any of the white lines. And he does it so subtly and smoothly that it's, it's often hard to notice. And now we will see some of his serving routine. Oh, there yeah. it is, the famous tugging of the shorts. Tuning out all the variables and focusing entirely on performance often involves preparing exactly the same way. A quick shirt adjustment by the shoulders. Tuning out all the variables and focusing entirely on performance often involves preparing exactly the same way. Then a very quick nose-ear, nose-ear hair check. Tuning out all the variables and focusing entirely on performance often involves preparing exactly the same way. And now, Nadal is ready to serve. Before every once-in-a-lifetime athletic feat, before the fist pumps and the medals, there was also an opportunity for it all to go wrong. A mistimed step derailing a long jumper's stride, some thinly applied chalk sending a gymnast off the uneven bars a fraction too early, or a golfer's club face striking the ball millimeters off center and watching it sail into a water hazard. These were all possibilities. When the stakes are at their highest, for those of us who aren't highly trained Olympic athletes, these opportunities to completely blow it often become reality. But for those seriously contending for gold, there's a key to turning the potential for disaster into victorious reality. And that key comes from within. Almost everybody, you know, who's an Olympic athlete got to where they are because they are slaves to repetition and routine. That makes that pre-performance routine meaningful to them. I have this platform in front of me, I have water below me, and if that's what my focus is, then I know that I'm diving unconsciously. I don't like to wear the same underwear for every game. <laughs> From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the Tokyo Olympic Games. As we near Tokyo, we'll bring you the story shaping the greatest athletic competition in all the world, held in extraordinary times. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the 12 episodes leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive weekly into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. You've done the thing, whether it's throwing a discus, serving a ball, or shooting an arrow innumerable times. You've perfected it over and over again until it becomes normal or subconscious. But then you're asked to do it in the least normal of settings, millions potentially watching, an Olympic gold medal, you know, the kind that puts you on talk shows and gets you mentioned in your hometown for generations, is now up for grabs. All of a sudden, nothing is the same. Or is it? The court's the same size. Your muscles haven't atrophied. You just need to find a way to make this moment normal again. This is the mental game. 
Since the beginning of the modern Olympic movement in 1896, athletes have been practicing some subtle and sometimes downright bizarre rituals in its name. Rituals that on the surface have very little to do with actual athleticism. Cyclist Laura Trott wets her socks before every race. Usain Bolt is known for his pre-race posturing shenanigans. And divers like David Bodaya clutch their towels. Yeah, the towel, it's actually called a, a sammy, chamois. It depends on who you ask. But when you're flipping through the air doing uh, multiple somersaults and the force that you have to go through, it, you don't want to have something that's going to make you slip out of your uh, tuck position. But um, the towel is used <laughs> really in competition as kind of a security blanket. My name is David Bodaya from the United States of America, and I compete in the sport of diving. So, David, you've won four medals from 10 meters above the pool. How are you not scared? How does a kid even get up there in the first place? Yeah, so I I started diving in 2000 after uh, having a gymnastics career. One of the things when I was younger is I was watching the 96 Olympic Games and I wanted to go to the Olympics. And at that time I was doing gymnastics. That's the highest um, point you can get in that sport. As I got burnt out, I found this uh, sport never heard of before um, and I was introduced to diving. And I think the biggest thing was I had a a decent gymnastics background and the discipline, the individualized plan of the sport. You have a team aspect, um, but when it comes down to it, you're the only one up on the, the diving board. And so I was a weird kid. I, I loved pressure. Um, I dreamed uh, extremely big and I loved the free fall and uh, weightlessness that I felt uh, diving. It's so fascinating. High divers are, of course, incredibly well-conditioned physically, right, David? But were you also aware that your mental game was something that needed to be practiced and trained, or did that come later on? Um, well, from a young age, I started working with a sports psychologist, Dr. Chris Carr. And I, I've said this before, I, don't, I think my strongest asset in competition has been my mental game. Um, you know, I think the Chinese and some of the other divers, I think, are physically more talented and they just, they train uh, a lot more than we do. But one of the advantages that I had was the fact that I focused so much on mental preparation. What does that even entail, the mental preparation part? Um, one of the major things that we started to focus on at that age was learning how to set goals, but learning how to mentally prepare yourself for competition. And learning how to visualize your dives, whether that's closing your eyes and and seeing it from your point of view, seeing it from the judge's point of view, seeing it from the front. If you know how to do that and you can put yourself in a setting where you're diving at a different pool and just change the pools in your mind and you're closing your eyes doing all those dives, you, you are mentally doing the reps in your head before you even go to competition. And as I learn more and more, I pick up different things. And I was actually... Um, telling one of uh, the college divers that I dive with as she was preparing for a competition. One of the things that you feel right away, if you are in the present moment and focusing on what you're trying to accomplish, um, you, you feel the surface underneath your feet. And so 
uh, for a diving board uh, as an example. Diving board is, is super gritty, um, like sandpaper, so you can have grip. But there's a lot of times when I'm in practice or in a competition where I, I don't even feel what's underneath my feet. And I know that my mind is wandering. And so one of the, the checks for me is, do I feel the grittiness of the board? And if I do, then I know that I am uh, laser focused and in the zone uh, of accomplishing what I'm trying to do during that dive. If you're present in the moment, you can feel it. That's so interesting. How do you get to that point though, David? Take us through the process. What's your routine like? What's going on in your head? It's pretty fluid. Um, you know, there's obviously things I'm not super uh, ritualistic. Like if I don't do this and the dive's going to go wrong or not go so well. Um, but there is, there is a point where when it's extremely long competition where there's uh, 50 other competitors, it, it's a long wait. And so one of the things that helps me is getting my mind um, off of the competition and distracted elsewhere. Um, and so I, I'm sitting, I set up a camp where I have my towel, my bags, I have the drinks uh, that I need and uh, the snacks that I need during this long haul. And then I put on warm clothes, throw on my headphones, listen to music, and I play some sort of intense game. Um, and by intense, something that's going to trigger my mind to I have to super focus on what that game is. And um, it changes every time. Um, I played Tetris for years. And as it goes faster and faster, you have to uh, control your emotions, control the pressure of it. And so it kind of helped me reflect that what I'm about to do and diving. And so the routine is doing that, um, walking up. Uh, I talked to my coach about what cues I want to execute for this particular dive. And so what I mean by cues is um, that the dive stems from a takeoff position and then going into the water without a splash. And so typically I have some sort of takeoff, whether that's jump strong or keep my core tight or have fast arms or relax. Um, and then either a mid-air position where I'm squeezing tight or uh, an entry position where I'm, I'm trying to go fast uh, to the water so I can go without a, a splash. Um, so I'll get those cues and I'll uh, walk up and typically I try to get warm. I'll either uh, stand in the hot shower or get in the hot tub, uh, get my body a little bit more warm. And then I have a process where I'll walk up the stairs at certain points of the dive and stretch during uh, each flight of stairs. And then once I get right before the top, I'll model the dive. And what I mean by modeling is I'll, I'll do the movements of that particular dive um, as if I was doing it. And I'm closing my eyes, visualizing what those movements look like. And one of the, the key things for me is um, you have this little towel um, that you dry off for. Once I throw the towel down, I know that is go time. So I throw the towel down right before I step to the end of the platform or the springboard. I make sure I compose myself by taking a deep breath in through my nose, out through my mouth. And once that air releases from my mouth, I know exactly what my uh, goals and uh, mission is for that particular guy. is metal-worthy. So I know exactly when to come out at that four and a half. And it, it is funny, like you can spot the water and at the same time still think about what your cue is. And it's a, it's amazing what your mind can do in these uh, high pressure and intense situations. It almost slows down. And 
when you're in a competition, sometimes you do all that, you do the dive, and then once the competition's over, you forget what just happened because um, you're you're diving unconsciously. You, you're letting your body do what it's trained to do and shutting your mind off um, so that you you can execute uh, what you're you're uh, training for. As humans, there's only three things that we can train. We can train our craft, we can train our body, and we can train our mind. And the best in the world, those half percenters, what they're teaching us is that they're not leaving one of them up to chance. I'm Dr. Michael Gervais, and I am a sport and high-performance psychologist. A sport and high-performance psychologist. What exactly does that mean, Mike? Well... It means that I'm fortunate enough to be able to spend time with some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers across the planet, um, helping them understand and working with them how to express their very best across sometimes the most hostile, rugged, high-pressured environments. And it really is the psychology and the science and the application of excellence. The last nine years, I've been fortunate enough to work with the Seattle Seahawks. Prior to that, um, I spent deep time in action and adventure sports. So working with athletes that were literally in the back countries, in the wild, carving their unique path. But sports like skiing and snowboarding and surfing and motocross and Formula One, um, and uh, also included is most of the traditional stick and ball sports, like in the NBA and uh, the highest level of tennis and golf, as well as um, hockey. So those are, those are some of the places that I've enjoyed. Those are the types of projects where those athletes and performers reimagine what is possible for humans. And some of the other contexts are, you know, being able to push the boundaries from a record-setting standpoint as well, whether it's the Olympics and or um, professional sports. And one of the ways that I've been able to continue that learning effort is through the Finding Mastery podcast, which is conversations with people that are on the leading edge of their craft in their industry, whether it's the Olympics and professional sport and or business and arts, on how they are organizing their inner life and how they are using their mind and the mental skills that they've developed to be able to pursue their potential. Okay, so you clearly talk to a lot of high achievers on a regular basis, right? People who already have a lot of skill. What exactly are they coming to you for? They have fundamentally made a commitment in their life to pursue their potential. And in doing so, they're going to leave no stone unturned. So imagine the typical scenario for most people is that we show up, we've trained our technical craft, whatever it might be, whether that's you know, something at business or you know, the arts or whatever it might be, sport included. And we've trained our body. You know, we're fit to do and carry ourselves in the right way for the challenge at hand, but we haven't disciplined and trained our mind. And so those that are looking for a competitive advantage are making an investment with people that have traveled that path, people that are trained and licensed and understand how to apply good science to the uniqueness of one's um, immediate conditions, whether that's track or basketball or fill in the blanks, whatever sport it might be. And so I would just double down on this idea that if you're not training your mind, then you're leaving uh, the potential to be difficult to express, and you're missing a competitive advantage when it comes to you know, showing up and having one shot at something. 
And so the psychology is often said that it is the separator at the elite level. Everyone's got technical and mental skills. Everybody's got technical and physical skills, but it's the psychological skills that is the separator. So why not train it? <laughs> why, why not apply great science? So it's training and working out and reps, but unlike in a gym, I mean, we can't just load more weight and push, right? So how does someone even know if their mental strength needs work? Um, a classic example is somebody who has a micro choking or doesn't quite perform to their capabilities. They can do it in practice, but they can't quite get it done when the lights turn on. And that's because the psychology is not as strong as the technical or physical skills. And so my experience has been that um, the psychology of excellence is complicated. Okay, so how does a routine actually prevent choking when the stakes become elevated, like, like neurologically? The experience of not knowing is either overwhelming or incredibly exciting. And a practice mind can take the uncertainty of not knowing an outcome and turn it into something that is exciting. But that takes time. That takes commitment. That takes practice. Because our brain is meant to light up with uncertainty. And when it lights up, there's a whole predictable cascade of experiences that take place. There's cortisol, there's adrenaline, there's a whole system that is really, you know, this ancient brain of ours is trying to mitigate threat from thousands of years ago. And so, yeah, <laughs> the practice, the psychological practice of taking those uncertain moments and flipping it to excitement, this is not something that I've seen that people are born with. It is something that requires a committed practice to interpreting information, both information from one's own body, butterflies, activation, you know, heart beating a little bit faster, arms and fingers trembling just a little bit more, you know, the darting of the eyes start to happen to find the threat in the external world when we have this predictable fight, flight, freeze mechanism that begins to take over. And so when all of those activations take place, the psychology of one to be able to say, oh, my body's turning on. Let's go. Let me just manage this. Let me work with this. It's not that they it doesn't turn on for the extraordinaries. It's that they are skilled on knowing how to manage it. And they've put themselves in situations as close as one can to having those adrenaline rushes and so that they can learn how to use their mind to um, dampen it down. And so if we just reverse engineer for just a moment, the whole purpose of a pre-performance routine is to do a set or a handful of actions to speak to, to remind oneself, to focus deeply on, on what they are capable of. And so, yeah, it's good. It's a good process. When we observe, we go, oh, look, they're doing that thing. Well, it's not just the motion that they're doing. Like say they're shaking out their, their arms. It's not the shaking out their arms. It's what they're doing psychologically when they shake out their arms that makes that pre-performance routine meaningful to them. And that's, that's the game inside the game. And now, an improbable but not impossible moment with NBC's Mary Carrillo. Spanish golfer Sergio Garcia was a golf phenom. A stellar amateur career saw him turn pro in 1999, win his sixth professional event, and make a strong statement when he skipped his way to a second place at that year's PGA Championship. 71 for Sergio. 
Some touted him as a European equivalent and future rival of the winner, a certain Eldrick Tiger Woods. He withstands the power surge by Garcia. By the 2002 U.S. Open, however, the comparisons had subsided, as Tiger was looking to add an eighth major to his trophy room, at one point even holding all four titles simultaneously. Sergio had won none. Nevertheless, both players stood on the first tee in the final group on the final day in the shadows of New York City. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the final pairing from Spain, Sergio Garcia. Would Sergio seize this opportunity to change the tides and meet the promise of his ample talent? Sergio's tee shot now. When the applause subsided, Sergio lined up to his ball, looked at the throngs of people standing 10 deep around the first fairway, waggled his hands, re-gripped, squeezed, waggled, squeezed. Nearly 30 seconds later, You see, Garcia's pre-shot routine had progressively lengthened, at times taking in excess of 30 waggles and re-grips. Multiply that by the 200 or so full swings in a tournament, and you've got some serious hesitation. Garcia would go from second to finishing fourth in that U.S. Open. Tiger, of course, showing few cracks on his way to a commanding win. Sergio Garcia would spend the next 15 years playing professional golf at the highest level, winning tournaments, becoming a European Ryder Cup hero, and occasionally contending for majors. A great life, to be sure. But he also held the title of best player without a major, and was generally seen as someone who had failed to live up to his potential because of a lack of mental toughness and composure. Sergio was known as much for his frustrated club slams as for his effortless swing. At one point, struggling with a pre-shot routine affliction known as the yips, when a player's anxiety over the ball becomes so great that the brain essentially refuses to tell the hands to start the putting stroke, Sergio resorted to putting with his eyes closed. But as we've learned in this episode, mental routines are not static. They can be improved. They can be worked on, which is exactly what Sergio did. While the work on his mental approach could hardly be seen on camera, his demeanor and sprightly energy above the ball were very visible. In 2016, Sergio would compete at the Rio Olympics, enjoying every hole of golf's return to the Olympic schedule, which was eventually won by Englishman Justin Rose. Months after the Olympics, Rose and Garcia would stand tied for the lead of the Masters, one of the majors that had so long eluded Sergio. Garcia just two putts away from the green jacket. Garcia was marvelous that week, showing no signs of swing hesitation. And Sergio has finally done it. He defeated the Olympic gold medalist on the first hole of sudden death, when everything was on the line. After 74 major starts, endless waggles, years plagued by indecision and criticism of choking, Sergio finally broke through, proving to himself and the world that the difference between winning and losing has less to do with 300-yard drives and more to do with the five inches between our ears. Almost everybody, you know, who's an Olympic athlete got to where they are because they are, um, they are slaves to repetition and routine and, and, uh, and doing things the same way every day and every race. 
And, but I also think that's true with professional football players, soccer players, um, at that level of sport, the, that type of um, discipline is such a part of their life um, that, and I wouldn't fall, I wouldn't put that in a category of superstition. It's more the category of just um, developing something that's repeatable, um, like a golf swing or a tennis backhand. Um, the goal for those kind of athletes is to find something that they can do the same way every time, which reduces the possibility of, of mechanical or systemic failure or the possibility of choking. Uh, because doing things the same way every time, um, routine mitigates against uh, mental breakdown. The irony of seeing all these perfectly rehearsed quasi-robotic routines and rituals is that they're all motivated by very human, very imperfect reactions to fear and the possibility of failure. Even juggernauts of the mental game, like David Bodaya, are not immune. David, there was a time that you said your greatest strength, your mind, became your greatest weakness. Tell me why. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think what's funny is, um, maybe not funny, I think I've, I've focused so much on mastering the mental game and my sport and preparing for high moments like that, um, that there's times where when I was in a deep depression just after the 2008 games, I didn't know how to apply that to despair like that. Uh, the thoughts that were coming into my head, I went through depression where to the point of um, wanting to take my life, that's when I started to understand, okay, <laughs> something needs to change. And what I'm wanting right now is not fulfilling me. So there has to be something else in my life that's um, going to give me purpose. And so that's that's where I did find my faith. And one of the, the things in and that is learning how to speak truth to yourself. And so in those moments of despair or depression, there are constant lies going through your head that are going to try to um, put you down in this hole. And one of the things I teach my kids now is they'll come to our bedroom at night and they're petrified of something. And we try to, we try to teach them, okay, is what you're thinking real? Yes. Okay. Now, what does that look like in light of what your purpose is in life? And, and so just, you have a kind of a check and balance of what, what is uh, the lie in my head and how do I speak truth into that lie? Has the process of recovery from depression helped your mental strength in diving? Are there any parallels there? Yeah, no doubt. I think, um, you know, those moments of distraction during your competition, because you're not going to execute a, a pre-meet or pre-dive um, ritual or, or routine perfectly. There's going to be things that pop in your head that you have to shake out of your head uh, or say that that's, I've never done that before. That's ludicrous. Why would you even think something like that where you're, you land on the pool deck and you're, you're thinking, okay, that is the anxiety talking. Um, let's, let's get that back in check and uh, focus on what you're trying to do. Um, you know, I think it's, there's always, obviously there's times where you can't, uh, perform your mental routine all the way. But I think that's where it goes back to what I was saying with making sure you're inviting adversity into your training, where there would be times where um, my teammates and I we were training for a big competition and I would have one of them stand right in front of my face and be a distraction, like it was a camera or some goofball um, doing something in the background. 
so that I would know, okay, I have a distraction in front of me. What am I going to do to push through that? Because that could be something that happens in competition. Or another situation might be, there was one morning we were training and we were doing, uh, performing uh, our list like we would in competition. They were installing new fire alarms uh, throughout the pool that we were training in. And for about 45 minutes, these fire alarms are going off. And my coach and I looked at each other and just smiled because this is like an absolute perfect environment to train with adversity. So we we did our competition list and practice with those fire alarms beeping and flashing lights going off. And it, those are the kind of situations that help prepare you for the unexpected in competition. So you've learned how to embrace your mental process to try and not fight it. What about your time outside the pool? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, you know, I, I do something similar um, to my diving pre-meet uh, routine when I go to speak to large groups. So if I'm delivering a keynote with um, a thousand plus people, you know, that's that's a high anxiety situation as well. Or I'm meeting with uh, a potential investor and, and something I'm trying to prepare myself mentally going in. I think uh, when I do something like that, I try to visualize, okay, what what's the environment that I'm going to be speaking in? Um, try to close your eyes and maybe do your speech or your pitch um, to this particular audience so that when you go in, you've already prepared yourself. Yeah, I feel like after this last year, a lot of us could benefit from a mental routine just for life in general. Absolutely. It doesn't just pertain to sports. You can do this for any situation. It could be, you know, you're uh, you have a conflict with somebody else and you're trying to rehearse how do I say this graciously, but also uh, get to the point of what we're trying to resolve in the conflict? So, yeah, it could be, it could be absolutely anything. So it's certainly not a one size fits all approach. It sounds like everyone has their own unique ways of being mentally prepared. Are there, are there routines from other athletes that stick out to you that you can think of? Um, but I think one of the most entertaining ones. There's uh, a synchronized team. And diving, uh, Abby Johnson and Kelsey Bryant, they <laughs> together they would perform synchronized diving on a team. And one of the things that helped them was they would listen to the same music and just dance around. Uh, for me, it doesn't work, but uh, for them, it worked. They uh, did extremely well. But you, you kind of sit in the background watching them just be energetic, dancing around, and it worked for them. They, they walked away with the silver medal and they were extremely focused. And I, I don't think you can say this one routine, the routine that I do is what everyone should do. I think people need to figure out for themselves what works and what doesn't work. And I think the best thing is to do that during practice. Um, put yourself like it's a competition, have your coach uh, run you through a um, simulation of this is a competition and now execute what your mental game is gonna be. I've been around the game of baseball and softball my entire life. Pitchers are creatures of habit, and I've always been curious how they develop their own routine. Here's two-time Olympic medalist Kat Osterman talking about hers. It's kind of a routine that develops naturally. Um, I always, you know, walk my half circle to the back of the circle. I've always taken a breath at the back of the circle. And then obviously once you get to college is where coaches start to try to get you to be cognizant of what you're doing and how it affects you. And so... Since college, I've always taken the breath 
on the mound, but now it's natural. It's not a thought out scripted. If I forget something, it's not like all panic. And it hasn't changed, to be honest. I try not to change what happens in the circle as much as possible. That's circles, my one comfort place. And what I've done has always worked for me as far as emotions and stuff. So um, I try to keep, keep that the same. It just, it just is what it is. I mean, it's how I've always done things. And I think I probably did it prior to college too, just without it being um, made aware to me. Again, it's the whole reason you have a routine is to, to calm your nerves and to be able to put you in a good place. And thankfully, I've been able to throw, um, you know, in the Olympics before. So I know what to expect as far as, as nerves and adrenaline go. Hopefully, I'll be able to minimize it a little bit knowing that I've done it before. But, um, you know, I think anytime a game starts, you always have some type of some type of butterflies going because it means you care. Um, but it's being able to let that deep breath kind of relax them a little bit. Um, and that's what helps. So whatever your particular Olympic final is, a job interview or a sales presentation, or, you know, an actual Olympic final at the Tokyo Games, tuning out all the variables and focusing entirely on performance often involves preparing exactly the same way. You're training, you know, four to five to six hours a day, 300 days a year for one competition that lasts about eight seconds. You do six dives in the competition. Each dive takes that 1.4 seconds. So you're putting all this time and putting all your eggs in one basket for the Olympic Games. And if you're not ready to handle that pressure, then you'll just crumble. Be ready, be present, train for it. It is a life commitment to do the internal work, but it's something that they can count on. It's something that they can practice. But be ready to adapt. I'm trying to execute those cues off the takeoff, and sometimes it doesn't execute as well as you want it to, so you have to make mid-air adjustments. Because even though you can't touch it or see it, the psychology of performance is worth its weight in gold. When an athlete goes from a, a good athlete or talented athlete to an extremely elite athlete is when they are starting to focus on how they can control their mental game. That's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Subscribe now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads for more Olympic content ahead of Tokyo. Check out NBCOlympics.com and starting July 23rd, tune into the networks of NBC.